Today we continue with our subject, which uh, has been titled Our Only Hope, The Supremacy of Christ in the Postmodern World. And last week we started, or we dealt with Christ and culture. It was part three of that particular lesson. We didn't finish, so today we are doing a continuation of that and hopefully finishing in our allotted time. But before I go into the teaching itself, uh, is there any, are there any questions that still hanging around your head from last week? You can ask them now. Uh, we can try and answer them now, or perhaps it'll come out in the lesson this morning. Anything that's burning into your mind right now of last week's teaching? If not, I will continue. But if you have questions, if you want to ask questions as well, we can ask you to, is there a roving mic allowed? Uh, to wait for the mic, so when you ask a question, it's actually on the recording or on the stream, on the streaming at the same time, so people hear both sides of the conversation. No questions? No hands? All right. So, last week we covered uh, uh, quite uh, in length the fact that there's a captured narrative. Whoever sets the narrative controls the prevailing ideology, and we went through lengths to show you how wokeism has shaped the culture and the culture which we find ourselves has developed its own narrative, a narrative that in many ways of, is foreign to us. In uh, many ways we battle with a narrative because there are words that are being used that no longer means what they once meant or words that are being made up that, no, that never existed before. So the changing of the language of a particular discipline in this way, this changing of this narrative, is called revisionism. Uh, it, it, it's, it's when the narrative is changed by introducing terminology that is designed to shock and awe, uh, designed to provoke reaction, and designed to leave opponents hammered by an unintelligible rhetoric. It happens, and we are finding ourselves kind of at a loose end many times to respond to a challenge, but you're still trying to work through what those words actually meant. Historical revisionism is the reinterpretation of a historical account, and this is what's being challenged at every level. It usually involves challenging the orthodox or established views held by professional scholars about historical event or time span or phenomenon, and they do this by introducing contrary evidence. It may not be evidence, but they see it as such. And so there's a contrary view, or as some would say in some countries, contrary view uh, to which we hold as traditionalists, and therein lies the rub. Workism adopts revisionistic tactics and subscribes to a subset of revisionism more closely associated with Marxist liberation theology. Wokeism is Marxist at its core, because it's all about groups, it's all about identity politics, it's about uh, dealing with uh, victim mentalities, and so it's Marxist at its core. And you will see that as you go through the material in any form or fashion. The vision takes a foothold when a particular power base adopts a word or words or set of words, then give it, gives it their preferred meaning and then popular dictionaries write it into the general narrative. And so it goes from a word that doesn't exist to a word that's being banded about 
And soon the culture and society says, well, we better not kick up against this. And dictionaries like Merriam-Webster, Collins, and the rest puts it into the dictionary uh, uh, lexic lexicography. And, all, and from then onwards, you have to use that word. And in many cases, if you do not use that word or phrase, you could be guilty of hate speech. Uh, that is a, uh, a weapon that's being used all over the place. And you're never sure, this is the problem, you're never sure when the next thing that's coming going to come out of your mouth, which sounds so sane in your own head, is going to be hate speech. And the definition of hate speech changes as the uh, horizon changes within wokeism. Any questions on that? Any comments? Maybe experience in that. We all have been there at some point in time. We will get there. So last week we considered how the LGBTQ community has devised the law on same-sex marriage, and we spoke about society and the law. <clears throat> this change was driven by the Freedom to Marry movement, and we'll see something of how that has worked out in history, in recent history, late on this morning. This change was driven by the Freedom to Marry movement, who waged an unrelenting 45-year war on the legal system in America. Their win soon set the trend for widespread global change. And now the right to marry someone of the same sex proliferates every culture in the West. It's, it's just there. And to ask for something different is to ask that, uh, or to say that you, are, you, you despise the other view. They won because they were united in, the, in their focus and determined in their efforts to change how the opposite side fought and acted. And we're not saying that because that's our opinion. They said that. Here's a quote from the, their very website, uh, Freedom to Marry website. They say, we dug deep, we worked hard, and we helped transform non-gay people's understanding of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people and the values we all share. They worked hard to change the way we think as non-gay people. That's a new definition that you have to put in your passport. How do you, how do you identify I'm non-gay? Well, <laughs> it's not that far yet, but please watch this space. This is not a benign movement. This is not a benign or um, non-dangerous movement. This is very, very dangerous. In fact, the danger of this movement is the destruction of the nuclear family. What is a nuclear family? A nuclear family has, is a family where there's a mother and a father and children. Where there is a man who was born a man and identifies as a man, has been married to a woman, who was born a woman and identifies as a woman, and they are married in a one union, one flesh marriage, committed for life, and they have children. That's a nuclear family. So I have to define it that way, but we have to define everything. And this impacts everything. And the breakdown of this nuclear family has seen the breakdown of society and has seen how that is now creeping into every facet of society, including the church, where we have valued the nuclear family uh, in every way because we believe it's the biblical model that a man that's married to a woman, biologically identified as different, uh, and they have children, and so they raise this family in the fear of God. Questions on that? Comments? Nothing yet. 
the LGBTQ community fought the fight on other fronts too. We touched on this last week, and I'm just revising this very quickly. They changed the language of science and medicine. And so biology lost a lot of its reality. According to the new narrative, persons identify, a person's identity was not fixed by biology, but by transitioning male to female or female to male, M to F or F to M. One no longer has to conform to what was physically true and obvious. Modern genderism does not pass the duck test. Who knows what is the duck test? You all know it. The duck test is that if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it must be a duck. That's not just a, a quip. That's actually called abductive reasoning. It was used in the Cold War to say that something looked like a communist and spoke like a communist and acted like a communist. He was most likely a communist. That's where that had its, uh, its, 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 it was coined. So the LGBTQ variation to this is, if it looks like a man, has the DNA of a man, and has the pelvic bone structure of a man, it doesn't mean it's a man. It's more likely to be a woman. So they've taken what is very basic abductive reasoning and turned it on its head and said that just because you look like a man doesn't mean you are a man. In fact, a man, a man can now have a baby and breastfeed the baby and feed the baby as mothers do. The new narrative on biology is that you are what you choose to be. The language is dangerous, especially as it becomes entrenched in your child's school curriculum. And that's where they're going with this. this is, they've really challenged the nuclear family through same-sex marriage. They're now challenging the sanity of your children through this teaching of transgenderism. It's not just a man who dresses as a woman. That's just cross-dressing. It's been around for a long time. Uh, and the Bible speaks clearly about cross-dressing, about why a man should not dress as a woman. And they take it a step further, and man can now become a woman. And when a man becomes a woman, he is a woman, even though we cannot define what a woman is. So that, 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 that illogical approach is what prevails right now in common uh, discussion. They're coming after our children. They're coming after our children in a big way. And many of us have no answer or a structured defense in place for this. Many of us are just hoping it will pass us by. And so we pray fervently for those of you who have kids or are growing up in the school system. We'll get to the high school system. We'll get to universities. Uh, the, the war on their uh, ideologies, on their understanding of this is relentless. And they will be, um, they will be challenged at every level, including the playground. <laughs> including sharing toilets, at every level they will be challenged. So you need to, and we need to together, ensure that our children not only prepare for this, but that we have an answer when things go horribly wrong. On that very point. So remember, if your child, as a boy, comes home and says, Mommy, I want to be a girl, I want to dress in the pink frilly dress, and as time, you have a problem, right? But as long as he just dresses that way, in a year's time, you may find he switches back to wanting to be a boy. Once they give your child chemical changes, and eventually physical changes, their point is you can't bring that kid back 
or you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge fight to bring that kid back because his body has been changed permanently. And getting back is not as easy as just switching off something or stop taking medication. The change is permanent, and getting back to what you were by design, by creation, from birth, is not an easy step of just not wearing a pink frilly dress and a flowers in your head. It's a huge change. So Denver's point is pertinent. It's, it's critical. Now, I understand you listen to your children's language. I'm going to say that later on again this morning. You listen to your children's language they're coming from school. And be careful what you affirm when they say something because you can be reinforcing something which you can regret down the line. Also, the, which makes it even worse. It's another layer which is even worse. So they actually are boys that come into a girls' school and it's a girls' only school. And now no longer girls' only school. It's a boys and girls. It's now COVID, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Keep those points in mind because hopefully I get the end of my slides today and those points are going to become relevant uh, when I get to my last few uh, comments this morning. So, uh, revisionism has not only made major changes to the law and to science, it's also made huge attempts in revising scripture. This is really the ultimate goal. They know that if they are able to knock down essential biblical doctrines, then they will be able to regulate the opinion of Western society. And to this end, the LGBTQ uh, community has embraced revisionist theology, and they are coming after the church and the Bible, and they're doing that in a very significant way. And there's, they, are, they are succeeding at a phenomenal pace. And uh, though they're coming through the doors of churches that do not uh, espouse um, our theology or doctrinal base, they were, they were seen nonetheless as Christian churches, orthodox, uh, though they may just be um, uh, nominal. The point is they got the foot in at the door. And once that foot got in, they're not letting go. So they're doing this from the inside out. They've gained their training at both secular and theological universities. These people have all the qualifications to legitimize their narrative but the agenda is pure evil, and I can say that from, without any fear of contradiction. Because of the decay in Christendom, they've been able to acquire the roles and titles of clergy in a move to gain religious legitimacy. By that I mean that not only have women taken up leading dominant roles in both actual and pseudo-religions, pseudo-churches, but leading roles in churches are being taken over by queer clergy. And that is the wave that is now becoming predominant in nominal Christianity. And there is, a, there is a move to acquiesce to this position, even in evangelical churches, through the process of, of affirming, making feel welcome, and not speaking harshly. And I'll talk about the speaking harshly a little later on again. They are redefining what church looks like and what it believes a redefinition that is being widely accepted by the broader society. They are not alone in this. They have majority support. The world supports them. Whether the person claims to be gay or one of the letters in the, in the, in the soup, they will affirm and, and welcome them. And this is no surprise because this is exactly what Romans 1 says will happen. Let me quote Romans 1 to you. Romans 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. There's the verse. Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so the approval that's been received by this movement is overwhelming so that you and I end up being a small minority, a voice of people that's, that's inconsequential, that most likely are flat earthers and Trump supporters. And because of that, we don't qualify to say a thing. We have been moved out of the current discourse. I want to show you something now, which I want to make you understand how this has come to be entrenched in, in the church. And it started... Uh, with uh, a man in one stream anyway um, as queer Christianity tries to make its, its way into a church and displace normative Christianity. In 1968, a man called Troy DeRoy Perry. He is an American cleric and is a founder of the Metropolitan Community Church. This was a man who was married. Uh, he has two sons and eventually he decided to come out. And he started, he founded this church, the Metropolitan Community Church, as a church that was established to minister to the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities in where else? Los Angeles. He divorced his wife in 1964, and uh, he's now 83 and still married to his current husband, Philip Ray de Blick. This man went full circle. This man is a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. He's a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Moody Bible Institute is still one that's fighting this. I mean, they're fighting people. They, they, they have a court case now with a woman uh, on the staff who believes that women should be preaching. So they happy to take that to court. They're still not bending here. But this man came from the Moody Bible Institute. So there's no guarantees that because you have a sound theological training, you may have the pedigree, but you may still have the insanity that may come out in some point in time. Dr. John Boswell, Dr. John Boswell, uh, he wrote a book, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, in 1981. Uh, this again, he's a significant academic. So this was now this fight been taken to academia, and he was a specialist in medieval history religious studies, and queer studies. This man wrote this book, which became the seminal uh, document for queer theology and for the beginning of a queer movement that was taking over Christianity. He died in 1994, but he was married to a man, no surprise, there. The next wave of change came in the 1990s, with a group called Soul Force. Soul Force is a group, when I say evil, uh, if you read the website, it is scary uh, the way they have filled their ranks of, of, of workers with, mm. with people who we define, we, we define as Wiccans, as pagans, as uh, every form of aberrant re religious group, but they all claim to be pastors and ministers and they wear back-to-front collars, and they've come through some seminaries. So 
Here is what comes from their webpage. I'll just give you two lines because their webpage is long and it's scary. They say, we are queer people reclaiming our spirits from weaponized religion. So they see religion as being weaponized, not just religion in general. Next line. They, they want to learn more about Christian supremacy and what it takes to sabotage it. That's their goal, to sabotage Christianity at every level. And these are people who get into schools, into universities, and they are every level they got. They have propaganda that is freely available. They don't have to pay for it. And they will challenge every single uh, front that we hold here. So, from 1991, one man opens a church. 1981, one man opens a church. 1990, they have the seminal document going out with Dr. Boswell, and then we have the soul force uh, coming on the scene, and they have been fighting for this ever since. Nine, uh, 2013, we have a man appearing on the horizon who changes a lot of people's minds. His name is Matthew Vines. Matthew Vines uh, is the founder of the, an executive director of the Reformation Project. Look at the word, the Reformation Project and the author of God and the Gay Christian, the biblical, the biblical, the biblical case in support of same-sex relationships. Matthew attended Harvard University from 2008 to 2010, and then he took off two years out of his life to study and to challenge and to refute the so-called clobber passages in the Bible. And he has got an answer for all of those passages, six Seven of them, perhaps, depending on how you look at them. And every one of them, according to Matthew Vines, does not address homosexuality. And here's some of his words. Let me give you some of his words so you can understand how Matthew Vines thinks. And Matthew Vines is a very presentable young man, um, very uh, gregarious, very easy to get on with. And he captured the mind of, of, of Christians uh, because he seemed so likable. He seemed so nice. He seems so benign. He says, I want to begin tonight. That was, his, that was his inaugural speech at the Methodist church in his hometown. I want to begin tonight by considering the traditional interpretation of Scripture on this subject, in part because its conclusions have a much longer history within the church, and also because I think that many who adhere to that position feel that those who are arguing for a new position haven't yet put forth theological arguments. And this is a man who went at Christianity from a theological perspective. So it's not from outside, it's from inside, and he's fighting them, fighting us on the level playing field as he's concerned because he's fighting theology with theology. No longer academics, no longer just out there with politics, it's theology with theology. And, and he says, and, they, and that, that, oh, that, sorry, for a new position, haven't put forth, forth theological arguments that are well grounded in scripture as their own. In which case, the most biblically sound position should prevail. He knows if he can have a theological sound basis for his opinions and make it based in Scripture, then we're going to have to see that, well, your theology is better than ours, therefore we affirm you. Listen to these words, his closing statement in that speech. Being different is no crime. Do we agree with him? Being different is no crime. Be careful. Because what he's saying, really, in a very uh, subtle way, is that if you're black and I'm white, it's not a crime to be different, right? Because what we are ethnically is natural. 
We've been born to that. I've been born to a colored community. Uh, some have been born to a black community. You may be born to a white community. So that is what we are from birth. So we are different. It's no crime. Being different is no crime. The language is subtle. It disguises things, and they, it, it sucks you in. And once you've agreed to something, you find it difficult to cart well out of it. His next line, being gay is not a sin. He's gone from being different is no crime to being gay is not a sin. And for a gay person to desire and pursue love and marriage and family, listen to the words, listen to the phraseology, is no more selfish or sinful than when a straight person desires and pursues the very same things. The Song of Songs is quoting Solomon. The Song of Songs tells us that King Solomon's wedding day was the day his heart rejoiced. So he's now working between his ideology and scripture and, more, and confusing things as he goes along. To deny a small minority of people not just a wedding day, so now it's gone from not just a wedding day, but a lifetime of love and commitment and family is to inflict on them a devastating level of hurt and anguish. And now he's accusing the church of saying, you're denying me something which is my right. Because you can enjoy it, why can't I enjoy it? Not just a wedding, but a family. So when a gay couple goes to adopt, which they can't produce a child, right? We know that, right? You are solid there, right? They've got to do a lot of things to try and produce a child. It doesn't work, especially if it's man and man. So they have to adopt. And they very likely get adopt, a child adopted before you and I can. Be very careful. It's not as uh, they, they, have, they have access. Um, that's my point. There is nothing in the Bible. This is this. There's nothing in the Bible. This is a statement he's making without any hesitation. There is nothing in the Bible that indicates that Christians are called to perpetuate that kind of pain in other people's lives rather than work to alleviate it. So it's turning what we stand for when we stand for the truth as inflicting pain. Especially when the problem is so easy to fix. He's giving you now a solution to the problem. There's a problem. You hate us, but it's easy to fix. Here's the solution. All it takes is acceptance. All it takes is acceptance. Gay people should be a treasured part of our families and our communities, and the truly Christian response to them is acceptance, support, and love. And this man does everything to exude why you should be accepted, supported, and loved. And that's become the wedge that's been driven into the evangelical church, so that churches are now affirming of people that seem to be so loving they just want to be partners, and we should not stand in the way. From Troy Perry to Matthew and Vines, another 45 years. Those who ran concurrently, the point is these people don't give up. And why am I spending so much time on this? To highlight their agenda. Let me give you a quick quote from one of their websites as to what their agenda is. This is the agenda of queer theology. The queer community needs to be liberated from the heterosexism latent in Christian theology. Queer theology can become a legitimate practice and more in a mode of biblical exegesis if the queer community can liberate heterosexually biased Christian theology. These guys don't mess around. These ladies don't mess around. I'm not sure what to call them anymore. Queer Christians need to reclaim their right to participate in Christianity and and detail the experiences as gay and lesbian Christians. 
It's been conflated. Christianity has traditionally been a patriarchal, where's the word, and heterosexual institution. Queer people challenge the patriarchal and heterosexist culture of Christianity by refusing to accept. They want us to accept them, but they refuse to accept. We, what's good for the goose is never good for the gander when it comes to queer theology. To accept the rules laid out by traditional Christian theology, namely that one must follow the rules of males and be heterosexual. The queer community can reclaim Christian theology for themselves using the model of liberation theology to create a queer theology. Where is it? The cards on the table. They are Marxists, and they're going to change us come the other place or high water. So you should accept us becomes we will dominate you. Remember, they only wanted to have the right to marry. Then they had the right to marry. Then they wanted us to accept that marriage. And then they wanted to make sure that people can change and they can marry any they want to be. So it's never a simple thing. So the thing to worry about is the danger. This is every move on people to place within churches people that look like ministers and pastors who teach an teach a evil theology and they are definitely hooves among sheep. I have 11 minutes left, and I'm going to try and finish in the time. I don't need much more than that. Any questions on that? Okay, let me finish the next slide, and then we'll talk a bit about a couple of things. The narrative. The church has been wrong about interpreting certain scriptures until recently. Queer theology does not deny the word of God, but it revises the meaning of the word of God. And queer theology inculcates into theology a process called queering. And they will take things that seem to be so simple and reframe it in, in, in their ideology and make it mean something else. And I said last week, I said it again. So when they come out, they say coming out is a biblically-based process. Jesus said to Lazarus, come out. And as Lazarus came out, it showed that coming out is not anti-biblical. This is on their web pages. This is not something I'm sucking up. This is where it is. And so, they've also introduced into, into the language um, definitions of who we are as Christians. So, the Christian church has somehow been um, culpable of participating in this. And we are now taking different sides, whether we like it or not. The question is, which are you? Are you a side A Christian? Side A Christians believe that God intentionally created... This is Christians, right? It's not side A queers. This is side A Christians. People are claim to be evangelical Christians. Side A Christians believe that God intentionally created queer people with same-sex attractions. Therefore, same-sex relationships are blessed by God. Side A is commonly called the affirming view. Side B, side B Christians believe and hold that homosexual orientation is not a sin, but acting on homosexual inclination is. So they, these people start introducing confusion which plays out in a horrible way. Side B takes the position that sexual relations between people of the same sex are morally wrong, but romantic relationships are different. So celibate same-sex partnerships are not necessarily wrong. The confusion becomes, un you can't unravel it. And this is causing issues in places like theological seminaries, where they are affirming to their students, but prohibit them from marrying the same sex. And so that happens they have introduced into the very seminary lifestyle, some which they now can no longer handle. It's been challenged in courts. 
Or perhaps you're a side X Christian. Side X Christians believe that homosexual attraction itself is a sin. Those with same-sex inclinations must repent for heterosexuality is God's purpose for all people. God can and does change sinful attractions and homosexuals can be cured. I'm going to touch on that before I finish this morning. Or are you possibly a side Y Christian? You fit into one of these groups, whether you like it or not. They placed you there. A side Y Christian is the most confused of all. Side Y Christians basically falls in between side B and side A, agreeing with both, but denying things. So, what they say, uh, unlike side B, side Y does not see maintaining a queer identity as God-honoring. And unlike side X, side Y does not strive to make all Christians heterosexual. The ultimate goal, according to side Y, is becoming more like Christ by remaining in the way you have been born. So you are gay, you can't change it, but as long as you can grow in your gayness in Christ, you are okay. Here's a scary point. I'm going to make this comment, and some of you may recognize what I'm going to say. So, most likely, we'll be side X. I'm a side X if I must choose anything, because, yeah, I believe that that heterosexual, that, that homosexuality, like any other sin, has to be dealt with through the scripture, and that God has designed us to be heterosexual. It should be said, this is a comment from the, uh, I got these, these, this insert from a, a website, and this is the comment of the author of the website. It should be said that side A has no scriptural basis whatsoever. Agreed. The other sides have varying degrees of biblical support. So this person is saying that side B, side X, side Y, kind of, depending on how you go, has biblical support. It's up to Christians to study pray and decide for themselves whether side B, side X, side Y, or somewhere in between best represents their convictions. <clears throat> that comes from a site which many of you use. It's called Got Questions. Got Questions. So up until this last comment, I was okay. And then I read this. So this is a man who has been trained in, I think, Princeton University. Princeton, and he's, been a, he's, a, he's a Dallas seminarian. Normally good, but he sees that there's actually a place, there's wiggle room for you to adjust your view and find how much or how little a firm you can be. This is insidious. It's getting to places which we would never have questioned years ago. Questions, before I move on to my closing slides. Are you all shocked? There's more shocks coming your way. Final frontiers. What are the final? Well, we know the legal system is gone. We know science and medicine is gone. We know academia is gone. What's the last frontiers that they are breaking into? Our children, our homes, our faith. That's the last frontiers. You almost see a Battlestar Galactica flying off into the distance, a lost battle. These are the last frontiers. Never mind outer space. I'd like to hijack the quote I've been quoting from Winston Churchill that they have hijacked. I'd like to take it back for ourselves and rephrase it. I think this should be our, one of our mottos. We shall fight in education. We shall fight in our homes. We shall fight in the church and the pulpit. We shall never surrender. 
Now saying that means that not surrender means that you, at some point in time, if you, if you don't surrender, you may have to give up your life. And I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but I am saying that when we take back those words, our own words, the fight comes into our home, into our churches, into our children's community, and we must be prepared to fight it and never surrender. What are the answers? Education, homeschooling, church-based schooling. It's time that we get together and decide what is the way forward because there's going to come a point in time when our parents are going to become overwhelmed by the public system. What is going to be placed? And you know, those of you who are doing homeschooling, the government's making it harder and harder to do homeschooling. We don't know what the, what the answer is perhaps now, but I would encourage those of you who have children or know homeschooling, you know alternative schooling, to start putting forth proposals that we could perhaps develop over time. So when it does happen, we have a means of at least providing a net to catch these children and not let them be sacrificed to the crazy left and LGBTQ community. Homes, keep your family Bible-focused. Look and listen to your kids. Be aware of what attracts them. Listen to their friends. See which friends are attracted to them. Listen to what they want to do. Listen, look at the clothes they choose. Look at the colors they prefer. These things may be, you may think it's nothing, but it comes in from the preschool. It comes in from the primary school. It comes in from the secondary school. And things may come in without you realizing. Because remember that they are told that if your parents are affirming, don't tell them. We've already lost the battle to teachers who say, if your parents won't be your parents, I'll be a loving parent. Come and watch me do a drag show next week. That's crazy. And then, church and pulpit, pray and support Bible preaching godly pastors. <clears throat> Keep yourselves trained in biblical thinking. Be aware of the changing culture. The culture is changing. It's changing dramatically. It's changing quickly. Finally, I'll close and then leave this sometime. Erin. Okay. Yeah. Yes, you always need a mic. In fact, that mic's, that, that mic's got your name on it. Thank you. <laughs> I just want to make a comment, um, especially to the parents who have little children, to not be um, naive, to think we are raising our kids publicly. We come to church, we we. Um, hang out with, with like-minded people in the church and our friends um, are Christians and so our offspring have Christian offspring family friends as well. But you can be naive um, to think that your child will not fall or succumb to the influence of the culture they find themselves in, not only in schools but in your own home because of the music that you still think it's fine to listen to, like when you're driving, dropping them at school, listening to the radio, the music itself, the kids are easily influenced, and, and it's like an earworm, and they're singing it and playing it, and you think, where did you hear that? You know, the movies that you listen, um, the movies that you watch, they pick up the songs there as well, and so just don't be naive parents to think your child knows what you stand for in your home because when you go to your uncle's and aunt's home your cousin may be gay and so now your child has to acknowledge the gayness of the cousin so so just don't be naive and don't rest in thinking you don't have to constantly um teach biblical principles and and yeah, yeah no, you get right. my point so 
That's all. The songs they sing, Disney has gone overboard. Thankfully, they're losing money left, right, and center. Pray they lose more money as they go to business. Um, it's, it's the songs, it's the movies, it's the poems. You teach your children Bible stories. They will use that against your child. How many of you taught the story of David and, uh, David and, and, and um, Jonathan? Bible story, right? They will tell you and tell them that that's a lovely story. It's a biblical story of two gay boys. Because David loved Jonathan, or Jonathan loved David, one or the other, but the love was greater than a woman's love. Now, that was a unique relationship of two men. But they will use that same story you told your children to turn the, t- the tables on you. So they will use everything and anything. You're right. So we need to be careful. We need to listen. Some resources which is helpful, and I will, I will qualify what these are because they are um, they are available to all of you. Hi, Aaron, before I go forward, yeah? Yes, sorry, Peter. Uh, just on, on Aaron's uh, comment, uh, sister, I would uh, say that biblical truth, not just biblical principles, biblical truth. Yep. Well, biblical truth uh, has built in biblical principles, right? Uh, we need to understand that when we are Bible-based, it, 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 it's far-reaching, those principles need to be applied everywhere, not just in this area. Remember, it has to be applied in every area, even in our lives where we are not gay, where we are not transgender, where we are not supporting, but we live married lives. It's got to impact our married lives. It's got to impact our, impact our parenthood. So the biblical principles and the biblical, the biblical truths, so we need to indeed inculcate them. So here's some resources, and I'm going to give you these names. I'll tell you exactly why I'm giving you those names. The Becker Cook Show. If you want, some, you want to hear something about challenges to this community from a, from a biblical perspective. Beckett Cook is a man who was up until 42 years of age a practicing gay. He got saved. Now there's a Beckett Cook show. And he says he refuses to be known as a gay man. He says there's no such thing as, as a gay Christian. He says there's no such thing as a gay Christian. He says you, are, you, you may be a Christian with challenges... Of, a, of sin, which is attraction to the opposite sex, as many heterosexual men have challenges where even though they're married, they are attracted to the opposite sex. He says it's a sin. You deal with it as a sin. It's not something that you are. He says that homosexuality is not what you are, it's what you do and what you try and, and, try and, 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 and embrace. He says he's not a homosexual Christian. He says a Christian saved by grace. He's single and he's working through his, but he's a good, good source of information. Dallas, the Dallas, Joe Dallas podcast. Joe Dallas was also a practicing homosexual. He actually went to the same church started by Troy, uh, the Metropolitan Church. It was there that he went with other gay communities. There he came to salvation from being from on the outside. Joe Dallas he is now saved. He has a wife and two sons. And he's also ministering to the community, but he's got great material if you want to understand what's going on. A very, very easy man to understand, Joe Dallas and the Joe Dallas podcast. Dr. Rob Gagnon is a Presbyterian, is academic and an elder in the one of the Presbyterian churches. So maybe some of his, some of his um, theology you may want to not uh, totally espouse, but when it comes to this subject, he is one of the experts on giving you clarity from a biblical, academic, historical perspective why the Bible is clear on heterosexuality. And why you deal with all the evil, deal with the clubber passages and other passages that affirm that God has made men and women different but complementary. 
Last thing on there, I'm going to tell you quickly, is Alex Taunton. Uh, Larry Alex Taunton is not, doesn't deal with homosexuality, but he is a Christian. Um, maybe some of the things, the way he speaks, you may want to think about it twice, but it's not. He really is a Christian. And he will give you a perspective, not only of this, but more, a, more, a, a broader perspective of the changing culture. He's good at that. Um, he has done well to, to research these things. So if you want to get a broad perspective of culture, he is a good source. Um, he, everything he says about Jesus Christ, salvation, redemption, uh, it's clear. And I don't think you could doubt him. Uh, but again, we need... So his point is that if Christians do not inform themselves of what's taking place, you're not going to be able to address it. Because you need to be biblical, but you need to be aware of what you are addressing, what is attacking you, so you can resist that. So, the big thing that we have to figure out, that we have to rest on is these men, uh, Beckett Cook, Joe Dallas, and others, have come from that community. They are now saved, and they are practicing the Christianity by living it according to the Bible. And so I'm reminded when I look at their lives of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who seek homosexuality, or practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So it is a curable disease. It's a disease of the heart, and it's, uh, but it's a curable disease. And such were some of you. Were they still kind of homosexual and adulterous and thieves? He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is not a dead in street, but it requires that the hand of God moves in his lives and the Holy Spirit changes them. I say that as, as, as a last uh, comment because I'm not trying to propose we go to war with these people. We need to pray for them. And God saves them. And God can save them. And God has saved some. And those are those who, are, who he's calling, he's calling to salvation. Beckett Cook got saved because, and Beckett Cook was a guy who, in, in the movie scene, he was with, he knows Madonna, he knows um, um, serious actors, I forget the names. He was saved when young people were sitting in a restaurant and discussing the Bible. <clears throat> he saw that, he asked a question. The next week, he came to the church and he got saved. So there is hope still. One minute for questions or comments. Or if it's too much, let us know and we'll revisit it sometime again. No questions? Dandre. And that will be the only question. This is not a question. It's a comment? Yes. Um, just also to the parents, what you know now, I mean, do more research and also educate um, the people in your circles as well. There are parents that don't actually really know what is going on and they don't, they don't have these information. I have spoken to some parents, mommies, that they don't know. They don't know anything. They don't know. And just giving them some form of information um, just encourages them to go and look what their children are watching on YouTube. They're actually, you know, actively, proactively getting involved, you know, in the kids' lives and in the schooling uh, uh, um, lives as yeah. well, you know, yeah. what they are actually yeah. doing. So it's educate, 
educate whatever you do now, educate those around you, those parents, and also inform. Thanks, John.